Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thank you for downloading the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. I'm Mark Stephen. We've just gone past the autumn equinox, so it's officially not summer anymore. And indeed, it's already got colder, the nights are definitely coming in. So this is a really good time to take a look at grazing strategies, to plan ahead, to investigate technologies that might help, and consider how you might use your grazing and feed most effectively. To discuss that, I'm joined today by two folk, Michael Blanche from Kalchuka Farm near Fork and Denny, just south of Perth. Michael is an independent farm consultant who's worked for SAC and QMS in the past. He's currently a tenant farmer with a small herd of suckler cows and over 1,200 ewes, and he is so obsessed with pasture that he even has his own podcast dedicated entirely to the subject called The Pasture Pod. Willie Harkis farms about 1,300 acres at Quantinus on the mainland of Orkney. He's got 370 Aberdeen Angus cross-suckler cows and a flock of about 650 ewes. Willie grows oats and spring barley and a few acres of neeps for his sheep, and he's been practising rotational grazing for three years now and has made a lot of changes to extend his grazing season. I'm going to start with you, Michael. Give me a quick overview of the grazing season so far in Persia. What's the ground looking like? Yeah, it's been a funny year, really. We started off dry, as everyone knows, and got very wet. And now we've probably, September's probably been our best grass growing month, weirdly. We've haven't grown a huge amount of grass compared to normal years, to be honest. We are organic and we're probably, this is probably the one year we might have been tempted with nitrogen. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's plenty of grass around at the moment. Willie, how about you up in Orkney? I mean, you're what, a couple of hundred miles further north at least. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite a, a mixed year as well, but uh, quite favourable for us, I would say. January, February was very wet. March, it really started to improve. April, good, I would say. May, a good grass-growing month. June as well, quite favourable. July, would have been very hard and dry. It slowed things up. And then August, September, like Michael saying, grass growth been very good again. So, yeah, I would say quite a nondescript summer, but very good for for grass and livestock, I would say. so. Let's begin with the basics, Michael. Tell me, what is, for a start, a managed grazing strategy, and why do you use one? I suppose why I do it is the two Ps. First being profit, and the second is, is may sound weird, but it's pasture welfare. So, and by that I mean, you know, we all know that good animal welfare or really, really good animal welfare uh, produces really good outcomes. So, you know, your livestock grow fast and they have great longevity and they, you know, their fertility is really good. So all that welfare adds to really good outcomes. And I know it's much harder to see, but in terms of plant health, you've got to treat the plant as it would want to be treated. Take ryegrass, for example. It's evolved for 24 million years. And 400 years ago, we decided to set stock. And before that, it's just got used to a hard graze, a long rest, and it developed that way. So, and if you put that into a 24-hour clock, for example, that 24 million years, 
we started set stocking at two and a half minutes to midnight. So those plants are actually not being treated the way that they should be. And so managed grazing is do, trying to fit what the plant would want. And that means really just moving stock around. So hard graze, long rest, and uh, there's a few sums involved if you really want to get into it, but that's the basic principle. It's just being kind to the plant and it's invisible. That's why people are, farmers are really good at animal welfare, but we need to think about plant welfare as well, I would suggest. And Willie, living on any island, I would imagine it pays to be as self-sufficient as possible. Now, how does managed grazing fit into that? You're 100% right with being uh, self-sufficient on an island for everything's a cost that comes in. So any cost reductions we can make is great. I would say, yeah, for a rotational gra grazing system for us, it makes a huge difference just your, your past year management. I would say we've built up a huge resilience in our grass from doing it. I would say we've got a, a stronger grass base now. A lot of the fields already would be in better production of what they've been in for the last 10, 20 years, I would say. So going forward, you can always adapt that and change it and make it better. But uh, it's certainly made a, a huge difference to us, I would say. So. And that all sounds excellent. What are you doing now that you weren't doing three or four years ago? Traditionally, we were very much set stocked, set areas for certain categories of livestock. and. Yeah, it, it worked good, um, but we were too reliant on uh, artificial fertilizer, I would say. And you found at certain times a year, you struggled due to just lack of grass or basically going through a, a, a less growthy stage of the, of the year. And um, also our, our winters were getting too long here. You had a late spring turnout and an early housing of cattle then, really. So you tended to, I suppose, get kind of railroaded doing the, the easiest solution was just to, to house cattle, take them in. But uh, with the other side, you end up making way too much silage. And um, it's not a natural way to be doing it, really. And it all has a cost, as you rightly pointed out earlier. Michael, can you actually... Sit down with a calendar and plan this stuff, or do you have to work on the basis of what's actually happening on the land in terms of the weather and things and everything else? I think you can plan a template if you like. You know, you know, grass isn't going to grow as quick in October as it is in June, although maybe 2018 disproved that. But you've got a base to work off. But then the exciting part, and it's not, you know, it's nothing to be scared of, but the exciting part is is actually ducking and diving with the what the environment and the weather chucks at you. So it makes it interesting. If you knew exactly what was going to happen, it's pretty dull. And it's a skill that you can develop, you know. I suppose information is really good. You know, I don't want to use the word data because it scares people witless, but, you know, a, a measurement every fortnight, you know, you kind of know what's going on and you can you can look into the future because you know... Uh, what your animals need to eat. And when do you actually start planning ahead? Is there, is there a point in a year or is it just a continuous process? Um, when you actually, when it's a rainy day and you actually sit down and say, I really better plan ahead, I suppose is the answer. But I think 
actually, someone told me that, you know, say we're in 2020 now, 2021's grazing season actually started last month. So you've got to, you've got to think about building covers in August, September, the year before your grazing season, if you like. And when you shut off grass really has an impact on when you can graze grass in the spring. So August is a really good time. So it's a bit too late for all the listeners, but you can, you can do it any time. Don't feel beholden to the calendar. But um, yeah, August is a building covers into the autumn is, a, is certainly a good thing to think about. Well, would you agree with that? I mean, what, what's your autumn winter grazing strategy? Uh, yeah, we've uh, certainly have a lot more planned out of what we used to. I would say we would very, very much just been living for week to week on it. But actually, now this year uh, we would have started closing up a lot of stuff in June, ready for an autumn grazing plan, and already in well September for us we would have closed up quite a lot of fields now for using for for yows at topping time and stuff in November, December. So we definitely look at our grazing plan or strategy completely different now. We'd certainly have planned ahead and I suppose nearly earmarked fields for spring already that we know if we're kind to them now, we're going to get used to that at lambing time or or cattle to turn out. So yeah, it is, it is like Michael saying, a bit of planning. It seems way, way in the future, but it makes a huge difference. We've actually got some questions in from the podcast listeners, um, and I'm going to run straight into this one because it actually follows on from what you just said. Is it okay to rotationally graze ewes at tupping time, or should they be set-stocked and then rotated in paddocks after tupping to tidy up grass ahead of spring? Willie, for a start. Uh, we've actually done that now for three years. We started in a small way the one year, and um, we just took a, a 24 acre field and stuck a, a hundred yows in it and paddocked, grazed them while tupping across it. And I'd done all my calculations and we got a very, a very kind November. And on the day that they should have left the field, the grass growth had, growth had been so good behind them, we could have actually gone back to the start again and regrazed it but we had other areas for them to go to so we've actually ended up each topping season now instead of a small group of 100 we've actually changed it up but it's less it like to sort of 300 400 yards in a group and still paddock them but it's less less fencing less infrastructure just bigger paddocks and uh, still two to three day shifts depending on the weather but uh, yeah, really, really get some good results out of it. The tops don't have to do a lot of mileage. All the ladies is there in a, a concentrated area, so it makes it very simple and name. Michael, the business of paddock grazing, is it not just a bit of a faff, though, having to constantly move electric fencing about? <laughs> well, I learned that very quickly, that um, putting up fencing and taking it down again is is tiring. So I actually, I've actually got permanent, semi-permanent fencing up. So all your stock are in very small areas of your farm. So it doesn't take long to look at all your stock every day. I don't think it's a faff that, you know, I'm a lot lazier than most other farmers. And 
I get people telling me that it's too hard, too much like hard work. And these are really hardworking guys. I don't see it at all. Well, I must add that it could become a faff if you've got little mobs of, of lots of uh, stock going around, rotating and going around, then that is a faff. And actually, hand in hand with paddock grazing comes actually a change in system where your mobs get bigger. You know, that has implications. And Willie's been through this, um, uh, haven't you, Willie? Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that one. The, the first year we did it, we just did a few groups of livestock and really saw the benefits. And the second year, we kind of micromanaged, you would say, as we always farmed, but tried to do it. But, oh, gee, you were, you're shifting fences every single day, every trying to get things to work in and water pipes and water trucks and stuff. And I think if we carried on that way, we would have done between cattle and sheep, we would have been shifting 22 mobs of livestock every other day. <laughs> so we said, no, no, to heck with that. And um, we took a bit of advice for different folk that had been on that journey too. And this year we have seven groups of livestock. And we've just upped the coup numbers to sort of. 80 to 90 in a mob with our calves and um, put three bulls in with them. And it's been very, very simple and actually a lot, lot easier to shift coos and calves now. They're very, very well trained. And when you're actually checking livestock now, there's just this seven concentrated groups to go to and that's it really. So a lot simpler really. And you have to make it, make it easy. You pair are obviously used to doing this, but I remember going to a demonstration day at SAC and, you know, they were talking about paddock grazing. And the thing that really surprised me was how quickly you moved the stock on because, you know, it, it's not every day, but it can be, you know, every other day. Yeah, I would say, yeah. It's, um, That's the fun bit, Mark. <laughs> yeah. That's the enjoyable bit. Under cattle of cheap munching grass is a beautiful thing. And that's what they do once they're through that gate. They just get their heads down, munch away. It brings joy to your life. Right, next question. There's a lot of grass on farms this autumn and ground conditions are pretty good at the moment. So what's the best way to use this grass for cattle-only farms, given that cows and calves have different requirements? Michael. Oh, I was hoping you are going to ask Willie, Mark, because I... <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Michael. Well, Willie's got exactly that that issue. But um, I, all I would say is they definitely have different requirements. And there's a we had a really good guy come over for grazing groups with QMS uh, back in 2014-15 uh, who would advocate actually early weaning springborn uh, calves so that they could go to the really powerful pastures, you know, the clover-rich, new grass, you know, plenty of it, and you can shut down your cows after weaning on the poorer bits and, you know, not, not give them as much. So that, that's the split. And obviously, you know, the creep feeder's not a, not a sin, you know. I mean, plenty of people use it to good effect, so there's no magic answer. We've actually done that this year. We've actually weaned springborn calves early, and I'm going to do another 70 this week. We've actually just put the, the quiet wean paddles in their nose leave the coos and calves together for a week. Everybody gets, um, well, I suppose the new word, socially distanced. They're happy with that. They don't need the same uh, dependency on mother and split them off 
and the calves, the first batch of calves, they're actually on rocket fuel rotation, you would say, now. And uh, the coos are basically on cardboard and water. And that sorted the split out. And the calves are, are looking tremendous, really enjoying their shifts. And uh, the coos are settled down basically on on older, mature-type grass. So it's something we're, we're really been keen to try because that's effectively cut uh, five to six weeks hoosing of that calves already. They would normally be inside, but we've cut that off them. And the feed that they're on is feed that's available, but very, very uh, cheap. So, yeah, it's it's certainly it, it has its benefits. Definitely, it makes the makes the livestock follow a more natural uh, progression. And amazing how you can build the body condition in them for the the sort of autumn period. Really, a lot easier than what we used to do in the past. So. I'm not going to pretend this is one of the questions that listeners put in, but I'm, I am curious. How often do you actually plough up and reseed? Um, in Orkney, we would um, we would be working a rotation of barley quite a bit. Basically, you're sort of three years in barley and then back to grass then. But some of that grass in different areas could be seven years plus, possibly even up to there's a good good few fields it's never ever been clued in me lifetime but actually since the rotational grazing we've i would say sweetened and rejuvenated that greatly by managed grazing than what we were when we were set stock so it's actually it looks a lot better already it's definitely definitely about the rest period for that i would say it goes back to my pasture welfare cranky comment is that you know if you that that what Willie's describing is plants that have been treated as they wanted to be treated. So the percentage of ryegrass in a normal sward will reduce over time. By managed grazing and paddock grazing, I would argue that actually the percentage of ryegrass, if you do it in a permanent pasture field, the percentage of ryegrass actually increases. That's one of the divergent outcomes uh, of the different strategy grazing strategies. So. And this is this is a genuine bona fide question, not one of mine. Is it a problem carrying grass over into the spring if ground conditions prevent grazing? Well, certainly for us, I wouldn't be too keen to carry too much over to spring just for wet conditions about January, February time. If it's a cattle-only farm, if possible, do a, a deal with your neighbour to take sheep in and graze it off fast, I would say. It's... It's wasted fodder if you can use it. But if you've got sheep yourself, it's not wasted at all. You can use it on your own sheep or your own livestock and it'll be fantastic, I would say. This is one thing that really fascinates me because down south, and I worship the ground that really good pasture-based dairy farmers walk on because they make a lot of money from pasture and it's always impressive to see. And they will go into winter with really quite high covers and get away with it. And I know that's not the case up here because I've tried. And Mm. it does melt a wee bit. Some of the leaves just sort of die off. So the older leaves probably just sort of go mushy, if you like. And But it's got to be pretty, you know, it's got to be pretty long for that to happen. And if... And it's got to be a reasonably hard winter for that to happen. What I would say is, 
if your last rotation, you know, because I will try and shut up a section, a, a certain significant proportion of the farm, actually, I'll try and shut that off by the 25th of November. And if you've gone, done a rotation and actually there's been a little bit of regrowth, that's all it needs, maybe to five, six centimetres, that's, I think that's pretty perfect for pressure because the regrowth has actually got quite a bit of nitrogen in it, which is kind of an antifreeze. So there is a bit of protection there. And even, even when I, I said it went mushy, it was interesting. The plants were still alive, but it's just sort of shed off its older leaves. So it looks mushy, but the actual plant is there. So it'll come away again. It does really depend on the environment. I know Willie's bothered. He's right by the sea, so he's bothered by his salt and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it, it really it's very location dependent, I would say. You've got to try and gauge it on your farm, I would suggest. Yeah, definitely. Carrying, carrying too much grass in the winter for us would be a, a bad thing, a negative thing for us, really, due to the, as you're saying, Michael, the amount of salt spray and also geese would be another thing that really, grey layer geese would be another problem. So we would actually work quite closely with a dairy farmer and have a, a sort of set rotation up until sort of Christmas time on a lot of his newer reseed grass and stuff. and. The benefit that he's actually found in the spring and increased grazing and uh, silage crops would be, he's certainly very, very keen to keep that going. It's been a, a big boost to him, really. So it certainly is a a, a benefit to, to reset that grass before winter for us. So Chuggis in um, the sort of SEC equivalent, you would say, in Ireland sort of did some work on this. And it was a really, they had really a really late frost in March, a really hard frost, and it all went to mush, you know. But they, they did test it, and it was kind of like um, sort of medium-quality silage. So it wasn't that bad. You know, it looked awful, uh, but it was, it sort of, it seemed to suggest, the testing seemed to suggest it was all right. But can I just say that this is an important point, is if you took the opposite of that question, so... If you want to keep, if you were paranoid about taking covers too big into winter and you grazed it all off really hard and you kept on grazing it until into January, into February, you're going to have a really late spring. And that's not the weather's fault, that's your fault. And you've just got to be careful about overgrazing during the winter because, uh, yeah, the plants don't like that. I'm going to paraphrase this last question, Michael, because you know, as as the winter progresses, I'm assuming that the nutritional content of the grass actually decreases. Therefore, do you have to make the paddocks bigger? Right. First off, be careful about grazing grass that you're going to use in the spring, in January and February. That's that's first one. When you test grass, it's surprising how good quality it is. The big variable is the moisture content. So you might be allocating what you think is enough, but they're actually eating mostly water. So I would say allocation is really interesting in that you've got to, you do have to make allowances for the moisture content of the, of the grass. So I would always give them a wee bit more in terms of, I mean, I get really nerdy about it and, and work out the kilograms of dry matter they need per day 
and multiply that up for the mob and then then you can work out how much how, how much area they should be on for how long in terms of days so i would be a bit more heath robinson and basic maybe but um rule of thumb well yeah <laughs> not every field fits the the wall chart or the planner or the the, the grazing guide but um i would say what we found is um sometimes are a new fresh shift daily actually is better than a than a, a great big paddock for the fact that um sometimes if ground conditions is wetter they're actually wasting that grass because they've actually they're doing too much mileage over it they're tramping over it but if it's just an intense fresh shift they're actually utilized all that grass at an incredible rate and sometimes you would say they should be in there for 48 hours and it might end up 24 depends what the weather is and uh, but they've they've efficiently they've used that grass as, as good as they can really so you kind of have to bend the rules a bit but definitely each allocation they're getting every every day every other day is fantastic what they're eating um, definitely win-win cuts out the feed blocks and uh, uses everything you've got on farm i would say which is kind of the name of the game. I have to say, I found this absolutely fascinating. Michael Blanche and Willie Harkis, thank you both very much. It's been a real insight for me into something I knew very little about, so thank you. Oh, thank you. No, it's been a good um, sort of relay of what we're doing. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's always a pleasure talking past you, you know. <laughs> thanks very much, Michael. And thank you very much for downloading this QMS podcast. We'd really like to get your feedback on these technical podcasts, so if you've got the time, it wouldn't take terribly long, head over to QMS on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter and just give us your thoughts. I'm Mark Stephen, and until the next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.